Amen. Good morning. If you come to the Oasis, you already know I am not your regularly scheduled programming. So uh, I want to say just on behalf of my entire family, thank you for your prayers and your support. Uh, many of you know that my, my dad, my mom, my sister are all back on the East Coast in our hometown in Maryland for the uh, memorial service for my grandfather who died last week. And uh, just the love that you have shown our family is just, it's been amazing. I just want to say thank you, really, truly. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Galatians today. So if you want to start turning there. As I was praying about what to, what to discuss and speak about, God put exactly one topic on my mind. And we're going we're gonna to attempt to do something that I don't know that we've ever done which is we're going we're gonna to walk through half of the book of Galatians in one service. So grab on to something, right? And the reason for that, in part, is, and I don't think this is a bad thing, but have you ever been, you ever been driving down the road, like on a road trip or something, and you're just you're in it, you're just focused on the road, you see the lines, you're looking out at the beautiful vistas, and for a second, you forget like where you're even headed to? Has that ever happened to anyone else? Just me? No? Okay, okay, a couple of us. I think that can happen in Bible, in Bible study, too. Usually, we are so in the weeds on a handful of verses making a really profound point. And that, hear me, that is not bad. That is good. However, that can at times, especially if we do that enough, can lead to where, yeah, we're studying this book. What's the book about? I don't, I, I, what is the book about, right? Like, what's the overarching point the whole book. Why did, why did Paul write the book of the letter of Galatians in the first place? And sometimes we can lose that. So what I want to focus on is sort of big picture. And as, as, as maybe a really, as this might be to, to some of you, uh, today's message, I'm simply going to do my very best to clarify for all of us the gospel. That is in a big part why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians in the first place. And that seems odd. Why would Paul write a letter about the gospel to a church full of Christians? We're going to see why. And I think so much of what Paul has to say to these believers absolutely applies to us, not just as the oasis, but as the church at large. There are some things that just like Paul needed to remind the Galatian Christians of, we would do well to remember. Because even though the gospel itself is so simple and it's so straightforward, it gets attacked and distorted and twisted constantly. Not just from outside the church, but even within the church, there are ways in which we forget. And so just like, just like sports, just like passing and blocking and tackling, this is basics. But we need to be reminded of the basics from time to time because it is the basics upon which our entire faith has its foundation. So turn with me to Galatians. We're going to start right in the beginning. Paul writes this, From Paul, an apostle, not from men nor by human agency, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul starts out his letter to a Christian church by reiterating the gospel. 
And the gospel, in the way that Paul lays it out here, is essentially just three things. It is that Jesus gave himself for our sins. So the first part of the gospel is that we have, we have sins. We have a broken relationship with God because of our spiritual rebellion. And Jesus gave himself on our behalf because of those. He stepped in the gap. He became our substitute. Now, we tend to focus on the cross and the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus as essentially the entirety of the gospel. That's not the case. The, the cross is the mechanism by which the gospel works. Right now with the youth, and I see some youth in here, so I'm going to put you on the spot. We are studying the gospel of Luke, and we've been, I've been harping on this, so hopefully you'll remember. Don't leave me hanging here. The gospel is about to what? We covered this on Wednesday. To what? Kingdoms. Nice. Thank you, Grace. The gospel is about two kingdoms. What do I mean by that? Go all the way back to Genesis, right? God creates his kingdom. Then there's rebellion. A second kingdom is formed. A kingdom that is essentially owned by the serpent, Satan, and all who have rebelled with him, which includes humanity. Jesus comes in the Gospels to begin to reclaim that kingdom and us in it to make a way through the cross for us to transfer from the kingdom of the world back into the kingdom of God, which is where we always were intended and created by God to be. But we can't get there on our own. So Jesus made a way for us to cross back from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God, which is his intent for every person. And Paul says this, if we go back, why? So the what is the cross, that Jesus gave himself for our sins, but why? Why did he do that? Paul says in verse 4, to rescue us from this present evil age. That's the transfer of kingdoms. Now, that's all well and good, but the last part of the gospel is essential because how do we know it worked? Jesus could say, yeah, I'd, this is what I'm here for, and I'm going to die so that this is going to happen in, this, in the spiritual realm. How do we know? How do we know? Paul says earlier in verse 1, because God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is the vindication. It's the proof that what Jesus said would happen actually happened. So we can look to the resurrection as the marker to say, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, we have no guarantee that anything else happened. But because the resurrection happened, we can look back and say that what Jesus, his mission, what he was sent here to accomplish, it happened. And we can trust in it. So Paul starts there, he lays out the basics, and we might again be thinking, why is Paul sharing the gospel to a church full of Christians? This seems a little redundant, right? Shouldn't they know this already? Well, they should. We get to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are following a different gospel. Not that there really is another gospel, but there are some of you who are, dis uh, who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. There are so many ways, both from within and, and, and without the church, that this simple uh, idea of the gospel can be distorted and twisted. 
And Paul says, look, there really isn't another gospel. But people have these weird ideas, and they add to it, or they take away from it, or they change something about it. And what you're left with is not the gospel. And as Christians, as believers, we need to be vigilant about maintaining this line in the sand to say, this is the gospel. No changes, no distortions, no twistings of it. There is no compromise here, in other words. There is no third way. There's no middle ground. The gospel must remain intact, what it is. And what it is is what Paul lays out in the first five verses of the book. So he even goes on to say that even if an angel from heaven, even if I, as the Apostle Paul, come to you and I give you a different gospel, he uses very strong language here. And if you have the net, they they sort of add a little... uh, emphasis to it. He says uh, at the end of verse 8, if they, if they preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be condemned to hell. Paul is not beating around the bush. But literally, though, in, in the Greek, what he says is let them be accursed. And this idea of being condemned to hell is just sort of, that's where this idea is headed. Now, this word accursed is interesting because it tells us a little bit about where Paul's mind is at when he's framing this discussion about It's either the gospel or it's anything else, and there is no in-between. We read all the time in the Old Testament about curses, Um, and and by that, uh, I mean like there, let's let's go back to Genesis. We've got in the garden, Adam and Eve choose to rebel. They follow the the serpent, and what happens? What's the result? Cursed, right? And removed from God's presence. What happens to the serpent? The serpent led this whole insurrection— he, he started this rebellion, this coup. What happens to him? Cursed. Then we get into the, uh, the, the wilderness in, in Deuteronomy, and you see the, the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and then they get to Sinai, and they get the law, and the law says, hey, if you follow these commandments, you'll be blessed, but what happens if you disobey? You'll be cursed, right? The idea is that if you are cursed, the picture is that you have, you have made a decision that has put you in direct opposition to God. You have decided to place yourself in an oppositional stance against God. Now, in the New Testament, Paul only uses this term two times, which is interesting because curses are all over the place in the Old Testament. Paul uses it twice, once in 1 Corinthians to describe those who reject Jesus Christ. That certainly puts you in direct opposition to God. But here in Galatians is the second time. If you twist the gospel, that should tell us that this is a serious issue. This is is nothing that we can sort of put aside or or make a second or, or third degree issue. This is one of those things that will put you in direct opposition to God if you get it wrong. And Paul is warning a church of Christians that they can do that. We all should sit up in our chairs for a minute and be like, really? If it's possible for a church of Christians to, by accepting bad ideas about the gospel, to put themselves in direct opposition to God, we should want to know what that looks like so that we aren't it, right? So Paul goes on, and I want to just kind of trace Paul's thinking throughout this this first three chapters because he has his own flow of thought, and we're going to kind of skip across the surface because trying to keep up with Paul's reasoning is like trying to sprint through mud. It, It just doesn't doesn't work super well, so we're going to hit the highlights here. But Paul becomes an apostle in uh, midway through uh, chapter 1. He's talking about how he's an apostle 
because he got the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, which is why we read in the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul did not feel the need to go immediately to the apostles in Jerusalem and compare notes. He did eventually, for reasons that we'll see in a minute, but he got the gospel directly from Jesus himself. I, don't, I understand why he didn't feel the need to go now compare notes with the disciples and be like, hey, is this, is this legit? Jesus said it. It's good. It's good, right? Eventually, Paul does go and compare notes with the, the disciples or with the apostles in Jerusalem because he says he has a, a revelation. In other words, he gets to a point like over a decade after he starts his ministry that he realizes it would be a wise thing to make sure that we are all on the same page here. And I think uh, there is wisdom in that. And it turns out, surprise, they are. They're on the same page. But not without those trying to insert themselves into that process. So skip over with me because Paul goes around uh, and he starts his missionary journeys after he becomes an apostle. He has the gospel and he's carrying it mostly to Gentile areas and Greek-speaking churches. So what he does is he... He goes around and he plants a bunch of churches in these areas. And then eventually he comes back, chapter 2, verse 1. After 14 years, he goes up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, and he takes Titus along too. And this is important because Titus is a Gentile who has become a Christian. And he goes to essentially compare notes with the apostles in Jerusalem to make sure that, they have, that they're preaching the same gospel. And I'm not sure that Paul here is thinking that maybe he's got something wrong, but that he wants to make sure that the, the simple gospel that he received directly from Jesus is the same thing that's being preached in Jerusalem. And it is. However, I want us to note this. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. Now, if this strikes you as odd... Welcome to the club. You, you're not part of this culture in this century, right? How in the world do you go from, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you follow Jesus? By the way, are you circumcised? What? Where does that come from? Well, we need to understand the culture and the, the time that this was taking place in and the group that was trying to distort and twist the gospel. They were a group known as Judaizers. And Paul, later in the very next verse, in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, he calls them false brothers. That's important because Paul, in his estimation, these are not believers. They haven't ever been believers because they have such a twisted understanding of what the gospel is. There's no way they could possibly be believers because it's just so distorted. So these, these people were essentially preaching a message. They were going around this would have to be so frustrating. Paul's planting these churches, and then these people are coming in behind Paul after he leaves and goes on to the next place. They're coming in behind Paul, and they're saying, hey, I know Paul told you all that gospel stuff. Here's the real gospel. And the real gospel is you actually have to be converted to Judaism first before you can be a Christian. You need to convert to Judaism, and you need to get all those T's crossed and all those I's dotted, get all those ducks in a row, and then you can become a Christian. Now, I'm not sure where exactly the motivation was for any individual who was part of this group. It could have been something as maybe innocuous as, well, listen, we're part of the Jewish people. We're God's chosen people. We had an old covenant. Hundreds, thousands of years of history 
how in the world could you just jump into the new covenant unless you become part of the old covenant first? I can understand, even if as, as bad as the thinking is, I can at least understand where maybe they were coming from. But what they were trying to tell people is, in order to be a Christian, in order to be accepted by God, you also need to believe the gospel plus these things. You need to, you need to observe circumcision rites. You need to keep some feasts. You need to do certain things. I don't know if any of you are aware that there is uh, a return of this thinking today. There are groups of, of people, and I've run into several of them and had conversations, who are trying to essentially say that, hey, we need to go as a, a church, we need to go usually off to some remote piece of land somewhere, form a commune, and we're going to start observing all the feasts. We're going to go back and we're going to live like Leviticus because for some reason that's going to make us closer to God. So I asked the person I was talking to, said, so where are you going to do animal sacrifices? They just kind of looked at me and they went, we're not going to do animal sacrifices. Oh, okay, good. Uh, so if someone doesn't obey one of the laws or observe one of the feasts, where are you going to stone them? We're not going to stone people. Oh, okay, cool. So exactly which parts of the law in Leviticus have you decided that, you're, that are worth keeping and which ones are you throwing out? This is completely inconsistent. And that's the issue here, too, that the Judaizers in, in the church in Galatia, completely inconsistent. And Paul's going to get into later in chapter 3 why it's completely inconsistent. But this this idea that, well, let's just cherry pick the things that, yeah, sure, that makes sense to us and make that a, a requirement for having salvation. It makes no sense at all. And this gets us to the very first area where the gospel can be compromised. So if you're following along with my scatterbrained uh, thoughts here, this is the first area where we compromise the gospel. We seek to make what is unequal, equal. What do I mean by that? Paul describes in other places, uh, in other letters, the church as a body. And how does he describe that body? That some people are hands, some are eyes, some are ears, some are feet. That we all have different roles to play, we all have different giftings, we have different talents, we fit into the body in different ways. There is inherently diversity within a body. But what we see here, and what I mean by trying to take what is unequal and make it equal, this group of people are seeking to make everyone exactly the same. If you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to have salvation, you need to all, we need to all do these things. We need to all follow these rules. We need to all add, uh, add these things to our lives. We need to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way. And part of this, I think, is because the world does not understand the unity that Christ brings. The world cannot conceive of unity without uniformity. Those are not the same thing. And as examples of, of how this works, look at a country like, look at a country like North Korea. They're probably the best example we could, I could pick right now. Uh, I was recently watching a, uh, an interview, several interviews with um, a, a young woman who uh, escaped North Korea, Yeonmi Park. Heartbreaking interviews, just what she 
what she endured to in there and then after she left. But one of the things that she talked about is what life was like in there. There was only one television channel. There's only one newspaper. There is a, when you go to get your haircut, there are a, a, a list of approved haircuts and you get to pick one. You are told what to think, what to say, when to eat. You're taught from a very young age that your tongue is the most dangerous part of your body because it can get you and three generations of your family killed. You say the wrong thing, right? That is uniformity. But we know because people like her have left, it still doesn't bring unity, does it? And so what Paul is saying is we need to understand right out of the gate there, is, there are going to be differences among us as believers. That is part of it. It's part of the plan. It's part of the body. And trying to force uniformity into the body of Christ is like trying to make everyone a hand. You don't have a body if you make everyone a hand. It's not how it works. And so Paul says to this group, because again, this is a compromise of the gospel. Nowhere in the first five verses of this, of this letter does Paul say, that Jesus gave himself for your sins if, insert anything, right? He just did. And so that should tell us that we don't have to fall into a certain category or do a certain thing before God would do that for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners, before we could do anything to add to the equation. So this is why Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 2, but we did not surrender to them even for a moment, in order that the truth of the gospel would remain for you. This is the line in the sand. We have to reject the urge to impose some sort of sameness amongst all, uh, all believers as if that is somehow a standard for being acceptable to God. It isn't. It's not part of the gospel. And so it needs to be rejected. Now, this was something that came outside of the church what happens when it comes from within the church? We move on. Paul gets to verse 11, which this is, whew, this is a spicy passage in the Bible. Paul gets to verse 11 of chapter 2. Peter comes to one of the Greek-speaking churches, Antioch, which, by the way, in Acts, we read, is the very first place people were called Christians. And they didn't call themselves Christians. Other people saw what they believed and how they lived and said, they're like little Jesuses. And it's stuck. They're little Christs. That's what it means. This is the first place. So you'd think, this is probably a pretty solid group of people, right? If they coined a new phrase for this group of, of believers. Peter gets there, and everything's good. He's hanging out. He's enjoying fellowship. Everyone is being treated all on the same level. And then people from Jerusalem who sort of subscribe to the Judaizers' way of thinking, but maybe like light in a light version. Paul describes them as brothers, but they still have this notion that eh, there's sort of, there's us, and then there's, there's all these other Christians out there. Peter is, he gives in to the temptation to look a certain way in front of them. And so what we read is that up until in verse 12, up until certain people came from James, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he stopped doing this and he separated himself because he was afraid of those who were pro-circumcision. 
And the rest of the Jews also joined in him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. And why does Paul intervene? Because, verse 14, I saw that they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel. Same thing. So here's the second way the gospel can get compromised and twisted. It's the exact opposite of what we see with the Judaizers. What Peter and the other Jewish believers were doing in Antioch is they were seeking to take what is equal and make it unequal. In other words, they were creating distinctions among believers so that within these churches there were sort of these second and third class citizens. It may come as a surprise to you, maybe, that there was overt prejudice and racism in the early church. Even in the Gospels we read about how the disciples were not keen to go through Samaria. And Samaritans were not very, like, thrilled about seeing Jewish people either. There were groups that really hated each other. And the really crazy thing is that in the church, some of these groups are brought together. And those identities are not erased. But what Paul is making the point to Peter here is, do you understand that in Jesus, in Christ, these distinctions, they don't, there are no second-class citizens in the church. In fact, uh, because, yeah, so making, taking what is equal and trying to make it unequal, it would be, how do I say this? It would be, Put it this way. Sorry, I had to get my, get my words straight. Just like today in our, in our culture, there are distinctions and divisions that get made all over the place amongst groups of people. Just about every possible way you could think to divide people up, they get divided up. Watch the news, right? Paul's point to Peter is to say, you have made inequality and unequal distinctions amongst believers. When in reality, and this is a thing that our culture so desperately needs to hear, we are, we are so hungry in our culture for equality. The message of the gospel is that equality already exists, but it's not the kind of equality we want to hear about. The equality, which is, supersedes any kind of distinctions we can make amongst ourselves, is that every single human being is equal at the foot of the cross. There is no better than when it comes to a need for salvation, period. And if I think that I am in some way better or less bad, let's put it, I have not sufficiently reflected on my own sin. That's what it boils down to. So Peter is rebuked, and rightly so, because there is no room for that in the gospel. So we move on, because Peter gets told by Paul that, you remember this, Peter, that the gospel is about being justified by faith. This has nothing to do with keeping the law or being a better person or being a good person or any of these things. You know this, but you're not acting like it. So finally, 
Well, let's do it. Let's jump over. Um, before we move on, go with me. Keep your finger there in Galatians. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. We see something really neat. Jesus told a parable that I'm sure no one understood in the moment. But we find out why, why he told it later. Matthew chapter 18. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20. I was thinking of a different chapter. Matthew chapter 20. I'm like, that's not right. Yeah, okay. Very first verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Goes out early in the morning. He needs workers. So he hires some people who show up right away early in the morning. And he says, I'll give you a day's wage, which at the time in the culture is totally fair day's wage. And they say, okay, we'll do it. Later, halfway through the day, he goes and he hires more people and says, I'll give you a day's wage to come and work. And this continues all the way through the afternoon and finally gets to the 11th hour. The day is almost over. And he finds people and says, hey, come work for me. The day is almost over, but I'll give you a day's wage. And they agree. So when it comes time to pay these folks, it says that uh, they came uh, and those who were hired um, at the end of the day, they each received a full day's pay. And then verse 10, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Well, because they worked longer, right? But they also got the standard wage. And they're like, now, wait a second. We worked all through the afternoon. We sweated. We worked super hard. We were there all day. Why are we getting the same as them? And the, the, the landowner says, did we not agree? Right? Like, this was fair. This was fair when I hired you. It's still fair now. I'm, I thought I was being generous to you. But, and by the way, what's it to you what I pay other people? Does that matter? I don't know that anyone really understood the point Jesus was making here, but it's almost like Jesus knew that this would come up in the early church. It's weird that way. That there would be people who had a Jewish heritage, who had thousands of years of walking with God and being in relationship with God and experiencing the ups and the downs that all that brought, and through the Jewish people, God would bring salvation. And then these Gentiles show up who hear about Jesus and it feels like they just make an end run around the entire thing. They're like, wait, whoa, 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 time out. They don't have to do all that? That was hard. But that's the point, right? Yes, and I brought you through it. And here's salvation. And the same salvation is available to the Gentiles now. The point is that in Jesus, there's perfect equality. But we have to acknowledge that we need him first before we can get there. Last. Hop back over to Galatians here. So we finally get to chapter 3. And Paul says, again, Galatians, help me understand this. You understood the gospel when I presented it to you. You understood this has nothing to do with you. So help me out here. Why are you now trying to adopt some sort of works-based idea that you can somehow add to this? You added nothing to your salvation when you believed, right? Why do you think that you're going to add to it now that you're saved? Explain to me how that makes sense, Galatians. And part of this, I think, and this gets to the third way that we compromise the gospel, and I think this is the deadliest one because I can, we, can see, we can see how these other ideas can creep into the church, but man, this one, this one has hold in a lot of our hearts. 
We compromise the gospel when we adopt a performance-based mindset and lifestyle. And we would never say out loud that we believe that that's how it works. But we live it, just like the Galatians. We live it. We think that somehow if I just <clears throat> more, like I'll be more acceptable to God, I'll be... And I think part of this stems from, just like the Galatians, a complete misunderstanding, honestly, of what faith actually is. There seems to be this notion in our heads, because we don't really know what to do with faith. We hear this word faith, and we're like, what is that? Well, I mean, I believe it, but is it just here, or it has got to be out in my life somehow? And we get all twisted up. I want to try and simplify it for you, because Paul does the same thing for the Galatians. Faith is not some sort of effort that we exert. When we say, oh, I, just, I need to have more faith. I suspect that what we actually mean by that is I just need to be more obedient. That's not faith. That's not what faith is. Like we can just sort of grunt out more obedience and that's gonna make us more pleasing to God. That's performance-based thinking. And again, not part of the gospel. It just isn't. I experience this with my own kids right now. I'm trying to help them see this. Just yesterday, and I wouldn't tell this story if they were here because they'd be embarrassed, but my four-year-old, uh, she made a mistake. She hurt her mommy's feelings. Yesterday in the car, she said, I'm sorry, mommy. And my wife said, I forgive you. Very next question. Two seconds later, do you still love me? I know. all. Yes, yes, I still do love you. My five-and-a-half-year-old is, honestly, he's even, it's even harder for him right now to get this thinking. He, he says, do you still love me? Yes, yeah, dude, I always love you. And then he'll ask the even harder question, am I still part of the family? I know. <laughs> try, like, try, right? It gets me, because I, I want so badly, this, and, and Christians, we need to know, we need to hear this, I want so badly for him to understand what Paul says to the Galatians at the very end of chapter 3, if you are in Christ, you are sons and daughters, you are part of the family what kind of thing could my son do that would make him not my son? Nothing. Nothing. He can be out of fellowship with me, but he's never out of relationship with me because he's my son. I can't change that any more than he can. And his performance in no way impacts the relationship that we have. So we get to this idea of like, what is, what is faith? Because justification and salvation comes through faith, period. Has nothing to do with my works or anything I add to it. Faith is not effort, it's not grunting it out, it's not being more obedient, it's not trying harder. Here's what faith is. When God says something, I believe him. I believe him, and only him. So I want you, especially for us guys, it's hard sometimes to, to think about, well, loving Jesus and giving Jesus my heart. It gets really weird. Can I be honest? Like, can the other guys in the room, like, Sometimes just thinking about like how this works, I'm like, am I really supposed to think about a dude that way? Like, it, it just, it's weird. Men especially, but this is true, and this is how Israel thought about it. I want you to think of it this way. Does Jesus have your loyalty? Is he the only one? If you're a poker player, when it comes to Jesus, you're all in. There's nothing for anyone else, anything else. It's all for Jesus I'm all in on that. And if it turns out that I'm wrong, oh, well, I guess I was wrong. 
That's the kind of loyalty we're talking about. That's faith. Does Jesus have your heart? Does he have your loyalty? Are you all in on him and nothing else? If you are, guess what? You have salvation. That's faith. That's the belief that Jesus is looking for. This is an important point, Paul says, for the Galatians because they have it all twisted. They think that somehow being trying harder, and they get in this shame and guilt cycle that we all get into when we mess up. And I just need to do better. I need to try harder. Paul goes all around that and says, this is because we don't understand how the law works. We think that back in Israel, they, they had to just keep all these commandments and then God would love them. Never part of the equation. And the Galatians thought the same thing too. And Paul says, I can prove it to you. Because in the end of chapter 3, he says, listen, remember Abram? Way back in Genesis 15, like hundreds of years before there was a law, God promised him that through him all nations would be blessed, which includes the Gentiles, by the way. That's Paul's point. So this distinction between Jew and Gentile is silly. It was always about everyone. But he says, uh, God promised Abram that he would do this. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God promised him. Abraham said, I'm all in on that. I believe you. No law existed. And I want to show you, because we get, we get this weird, that the law was never, ever about keeping all the rules so that we can have a right relationship with God. Jump back with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to read two verses. This blew my mind when I first saw it. Deuteronomy 30. Moses has just finished giving all the law and saying, now listen, guys, if you keep all these rules, it's not that you're going to, like, God will love you. If you keep all these rules, God's going to bless you. Your relationship with him will be fruitful. If you don't, curses, like we talked about earlier, curses. Listen to what Moses essentially prophesies in the first two verses of Deuteronomy 30. When you have experienced all these things, both the blessings and the curses I have set before you, you will reflect on them in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Then if you and your descendants turn to the Lord your God and obey him with your whole mind and being, just as I'm commanding you uh, today, that God will reverse your captivity. Moses doesn't say, if... You do these things, like you, you do these, uh, these things, then God will curse you and these bad things will happen. He says, when? Do you realize before Israel ever had a chance to obey the law, Moses predicted that they would not keep it? God, this was not a surprise. He knew it wouldn't happen, which should tell us that the law was never about dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. It just wasn't. It was to demonstrate for us that we can't keep the law, that we need a Savior. So we're back to the original gospel. Jesus died for our sins, period. I want to leave you with one verse. This is where our culture is just so in need of, of the gospel today. It's silly. Back in Galatians chapter 3, go to verse 28. Paul is saying that in Christ, if you understand, if we don't compromise in any areas, it's not about performance it's not about making distinction, artificial distinctions among ourselves. And it's not about trying to impose some sort of uniformity on people. None of those things are the gospel. And we need to reject them every time we see them in our own life and in our churches and, and anywhere else. But Paul makes this statement. It's in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. 
For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I believe that the word of God is inspired, and that's why this verse is so relevant today. But I also think that people are people, and that these distinctions that we make among ourselves have always been made among people, which is probably why Paul says this here. But do you realize that the three categories that Paul gives about ways that people are artificially distinguishing among themselves in the church is ethnicity, class, and gender. I would challenge you to look at our culture today and find any other category that anyone cares about besides race, class, and gender. Is that not everything that everyone wants to talk about today? And what Paul is saying to the Galatians is the same thing we need to hear today. If you are in Christ, if that is a bond that we share, it's not that these things are gone, but there is no way that any of these distinctions are in any way more important than the, the bond that we share in Christ. What we have in common through the gospel is more important than these things. And whenever we make these distinctions more important than our bond in Christ, we create division and we compromise the gospel. Our culture needs to hear this because they are stuck in a place where rightly, I think, they understand that there needs to be equality in the world and there should be justice in the world. The problem is this, this issue of guilt because in our world today, it doesn't matter how much good you've done, doesn't matter who you are today, we can go back decades if we need to, we will find the thing and your guilt is never gone. It can never be washed away, no matter how much time has passed. And so where that leaves people is with a sense that there needs to be justice in the world, and there needs to be equality, but nobody's perfect because the standard is perfection. And because there's no savior and there's no forgiveness, what people are left with is guilt and shame and hopelessness. There is no solution to the gospel that the world is teaching today. Not without Jesus, not without a savior. So Paul's point is to say, if we keep the gospel pure, if we get these things right, if we don't compromise in these areas, the rest of the book of Galatians says, guess what happens? You experience true freedom in your life. And we do all these things and we, we live a, good, a Christian life, not because it, helped, it puts us in some sort of relationship with God or ingratiates us to him in some way, makes him love us more. We do it out of gratitude and we do it because we can we're finally free to do these things. So that's why we do them. It has nothing to do with our salvation. We desperately need to hear this. We need to be reminded of how simple the gospel really is, but we also need to know this because the world needs to know that performance is a trap, that their guilt can be erased, and that there is hope. But if we don't believe it, how are we going to share it with them? Pray with me. God, thank you for this time. I just pray that you would work through your spirit in this, in this uh, time and place today to help us all to just realize the simplicity of the gospel. To, to stop, if, if we're experiencing in our own lives, any of these compromises that Paul dealt with in other churches in the past. This is not... This is not unique to us, but this idea that somehow 
these differences between us that are outside of the, the bond we share in Christ in any way matter. They do not. And if we do see other people in the church in this way, God, I pray that you would help us to repent because it's not the gospel, just like Peter needed to. But God, I suspect that more, more than those things, that there are those of us here today who are trapped, believers too, in a cycle of shame and guilt that we feel like we can never escape because we think that somehow if we just try harder, if we do more, if we're more obedient, that you will love us more and will finally be acceptable to you. We don't understand grace. And we need to. So God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts today, that you would overcome that barrier, that thinking, that toxic thinking that we get into, and that you would allow us to truly just experience your love and your grace and your forgiveness today if we have never experienced that before. And that we would just live out of gratitude for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.